This is What Goddesses Watch, a film and TV podcast that takes a divinely badass dive into the feminine on screen. With me, Soma Ghosh, film critic and editor of The Demented Goddess magazine. Welcome to What Goddesses Watch with author Nell Stevens on Cleo Barnard's adaptation of The Essex Serpent on Apple TV. Hello, Nell. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I just, it was like a no-brainer because I've been <laughs> reading your book briefly, A Delicious Life. Um, when I heard that The Essex Serpent was being adapted and by no less than Cleo Barnard, and I was just kind of really kind of falling in love with your book, which is about a young woman's love for the androgynous Parisian writer, Georges Sand, who comes with her lover Chopin to Mallorca with her children um, in retreat from Paris. And um, yes, and, and, and this, this young woman who is haunting the space that they, that they enter uh, falls in love with her. So there's really interesting resonances with the Essex Serpent. I don't know if that struck you when you were watching it. You know, it's funny. I have a terrible habit of the minute I finish writing a book, I almost forget them and forget everything that went into it. So I had this kind of strange experience of watching the Essex Serpent, the adaptation of television, and, and being reminded of some of the ideas that had actually fueled briefly a delicious life which is my new novel almost kind of being reminded of some of the process that I had in a really pleasant way so there definitely are ways that those stories speak to each other just to give our listeners a sense of the series because it's a six-part series it's starting on Friday the 13th of May so be playing all the way through May and June um the story follows Cora uh a, a widow who's survived sexual abuse, um, played by Claire Danes, who comes to Essex with her young son and her companion, Martha, to investigate tales of an ancient serpent that is killing young women who are found drowned in the estuary. And there, of course, very excitingly for um, fans of, of Marvel and his other uh, great, great works. She meets Will, played by Tom Hiddleston, a highly educated and open-minded vicar, who's not at all what she expects, and who's living there with his wife, Stella, and their children alongside their rural flock. Um, as far as the locals are concerned, they're really prone to superstition and understandably terrified by something in the water that is consuming young women. And they identify the serpent with the devil and Cora as his instrument. Conflict ensues, including surprising twists and turns of the heart. As Cora negotiates her relationships with Will and Luke, who I thought was a very interesting character, um, a brilliant London surgeon who's particularly keen to do surgery of the heart, and with Martha, uh, her Marxist companion who looks after Cora and her son and is clearly in love with Cora. Um, so I had big expectations because I'm a fan of, I'm a great fan of Cleo Barnard's Selfish Giant particularly, um, and was really interested in how she, who's often touted as a neo-realist, uh, would approach the genre of the historical drama, especially with such strong leads. It was surprisingly tasteful, painterly, restrained, sinuous and 
cerebral um we'll come to talking about water but it's really soaked in these greens and blues and overhead panoramas of this muddy watery world I wondered what your what your thoughts were on that as a as 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 how she approaches um the story in terms of the the look of the series and the way that um Essex and London look it's so interesting to me that you said painterly because that was absolutely my experience of it as well I was struck I suppose most of all by it's very misty when we get to Essex it's foggy it's misty and that instantly I was thinking oh this is a filmmaker who's having a lot of fun with 19th century storytelling it immediately recalled for me the beginning of Bleak House for example where we get fog through London and of course for people who are fans of Bleak House like I am this strange evocation in that novel of a dinosaur emerging through the through the fog and Dickens there is using this kind of metaphor for uncertainty and being bogged down and doubt and not being able to see clearly and I think that's all operating in the way that the landscapes are drawn in this adaptation of the Essex Serpent this kind of a lot of the time not really being able to see clearly <laughs> and, and kind of getting sort of suggestions and suggest suggestiveness through landscape which felt almost impressionistic at times I don't know if you had that experience with it but the wateriness and the fogginess of it this is storytelling that's so concerned with with finding out truth and finding clarity and there are characters who think they see everything clearly and characters who know that they don't and that's all evoked very skillfully, I, I felt, in the way that that landscape is portrayed, that kind of watery murkiness, particularly when we get to Essex. Mm, I think that's a really uh, interesting perspective on truth and what might cloud truth, particularly exactly. as we have these we have these figures of whom we have certain expectations. So we imagine that the vicar, played by Tom Hiddleston, is going to be anti-progress and certainly that's the feeling that Cora who's an atheist um, has and of course particularly as contemporary watchers that uh, Luke um, the surgeon is going to have maybe you know the answers that that she's that she needs so we're just going to listen to uh, a clip from an early episode where Luke and Cora are talking in the streets of London Natural history is my passion, Dr. Gareth. Listen, you can hear the river. husband was, was always buying me jewellery. I wish you'd let me operate. How does it feel to cut into a living body? So there we have the two friends, as it seems they are or they're becoming at the beginning of their relationship, don't we? What did you think, what did you make of this relationship? 
I like it much better in the TV adaptation, which feels a little bit like something you're not supposed to ever think. But um, I thought he was such an interesting character. So adeptly used to kind of illustrate some of the, the kind of big thematic questions that are fueling this story. It create, we obviously, we, we set up this kind of love triangle between Cora and the man of science and the man of God who, who comes up later, who's of course played by Tom Hiddleston. And I think it's very skillfully done. So that scene we just listened to where they're, they're walking above on a, a paved street and she, she leans over a drain and she drops her earrings down through it and says, we can hear the river beneath us. It's one of those moments in storytelling for me where it's almost too on the nose because you think, oh, hidden depths, right? <laughs> and um, of what lies beneath and all of this. And yet it's, it's so beautifully shot and it says something so precise about London and the way that we still inhabit London, right? As this kind of multi-layered city, which we can kind of uh, dig down through infinitely almost to find new information about our past. The later we see Cora, of course, looking for fossils and that Victorian obsession with geology that's just coming up is so neatly paralleled there with the way that London is a kind of palimpsest, this kind of multi-layered city. Very economically done in that scene. It's such a light touch, isn't it? And yet it's doing so much work. On the one hand, I found the restraint refreshing and certainly in the early episodes, and of course we're going to be careful not to not to give away any spoilers, but in the early episodes um, and certainly in the opening few minutes, uh, I thought, oh, this is this is interesting. It's quite a quite a clean, incisive way of peeling open the imagery of water carving its way in the same way that the unknowable instincts that we all have within us kind of carve their way through our life and lead us towards things which might be real and valuable or might be a horrid stinking mess and I like the fact that the possibility of that was present um in, in London and it was just quite unusual actually to watch in a period drama a woman walking freely through the streets you know without chaperones and like a host of other women and constantly stopping at dress shops it was that that too the fact that that Cora in the series has friendships with male figures as well as with Martha and enters the the male world of, of science and the hospitals um that was quite refreshing. Um, but I have to say this, it's interesting that you say on the nose, because it's exact, I have the same note, um, that I wonder sometimes about literary adaptations, actually, um, and the ability of on screen, the richness of metaphors and imagery to really work. And that's a really interesting question for those of us who love both screen work and literary work. What do, what do you think about the way that, for example, the metaphor of, of, of water, um, being in water and seeing underwater, which we do from the point of view of the super, uh, supposed serpent, how does that water metaphor translate on screen for you? It's, it's such an interesting question and it's difficult to sort of generalise for me. I think of all, of course, an adaptation is just a kind of translation, right? It's... It's, it's the transferring of story from one form to another. And I, I think probably my perspective on it, on it 
is informed by that metaphor, by the idea of if it were simply a different language, right, or um, a different a different form. And you you lose something in translation, and the task of the translator is to make up for that, right? To either evoke it in this new language or new form, or to bring something else that kind of offers something comparable. I think another thing that quite often happens is the adaptation, and it slightly unfairly reveals some of the weaknesses of the original. And I read the novel a very long time ago, so this is perhaps a kind of it's not quite fair, right, to do that kind of comparative work with something I've just seen. It's very fresh with a novel that um, is less so. But it reminded me of the really kind of heavy thematic work that's going on in the novel. And that's all here in the, in the water is one of them. But we also have just these kind of big questions, right, of, of science and faith mm. and I think it actually draws too heavily on that and perhaps reveals something about the novel that for me, it was a little bit too thematically laden. Yeah, I mean, apologies, of course, to readers who have absolutely loved the novel. I know it was hugely popular, which is why we we wanted to cover it. But of course, at What Goddesses Watch, we make no apology for sharing our opinions. And we hope that you'll contact us and give us your own too. Uh, I have to say that I have a similar feeling. It's, it's really interesting. First of all, um, I was given the novel, which is a very beautiful um, book, the way it's packaged as well. Um, as a gift and found it very difficult to read. I think that's to do with my own, it's not a difficult read. Uh, I don't want to give that impression. Um, it's quite straightforward, um, but uh, that sort of theme laden, concept driven, cutting into the heart, digging into the land, um, those sort of parallels, um, for me, doesn't kind of quite allow for the slipperiness and mess. I said earlier that when you see people in the streets of London and there is an attempt, and there is an attempt here um, to kind of get at the insularity and danger of some of those lanes, um, partly because of the use that Barnard makes of um, very intimate conversations um, being followed and tracked in this sinuous fashion by uh, an extremely adroit yet serpentine ca uh, camera. And elsewhere in the domestic scenes, you also have this sense of voyeurism from time to time, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I felt that on the one hand, with, with the water, I love the way that the blues and greens seep into London as well as into Essex. And I think what we're being shown in that um, clever clip just there is how the, the mystery of, of water and of feelings that um, plough and cut into the body of the earth or the body of the woman are that they cannot be contained. You know, that, that to a certain extent, um, I'm speaking to you from the Welsh marches, um, you're in London, um, and yet, obviously, you know, uh, underneath us, we're sharing the same land and ultimately the same, you know, the same moisture and the same, the same, the same life, as it were. Um, and that was something that I appreciated also that the way that having seen the whole of the series, I really felt that. I'm, I now feel like I've, I'm holding Barnard's world in, in Essex and her, her world in, um, 
in London. Um, but maybe just one, I mean, one last point on, on literary adaptations. Um, you were to say, so what you're saying is that, that, that in translation, quite often something gets lost, but also in translation, things can also be revealed. And I was thinking about I mean, my reaction to uh, a book that I love being adapted is that I generally don't want to watch the adaptation. I want some brave pioneers to, <laughs> to go ahead of me. Um, and the ones which I've loved and enjoyed, um, even of you know, things which were which came out before I was born and I've watched on DVDs, um, are when the spirit of the author and the tone of the book, something that I already like infuses the dialogue. So for example, the way that Emma Thompson rewrote uh, the script of Sense and Sensibility, um, or the little touches, much subtler touches in Merchant Ivory's Howard's End. Um, and then when people kind of improve upon the original or see the spaces that were there, which is maybe going on with this Luke character and think, well, what, what can we possibly do with that? So the original, the OG Smiley's People from the 70s. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's, it's even more kind of shabby and sleazy and uneasy than the original. Um, so I think the worst for me with an adaptation is spelling things out. But as I said, I still, I still found the whole thing quite engrossing, extremely handsome. There is this harmony, which is part of this painterly um, gaze upon it and if it sometimes it feels yeah you were saying about the concepts being writ large you have it also don't you in those panoramic shots so we we're quite often looking down upon the whole of the Essex estuary and marshes and we're seeing how the water has furrowed through the land and how how, how it's built up the land what about I mean speaking of the difficult things that are in there what about Barnard's treatment of physical and sexual abuse and how it's handled here and to what extent it fits in with this kind of watery murkiness as opposed to a kind of cultured, sophisticated, you know, sense of justice and, and, and rules. What did you think, would you think she made a, a good, good job of representing physical and sexual abuse and where it, comes from and the subconscious and stuff like that it's such an interesting story in that regard because it happens off 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 not off screen because it's on screen, it happens behind the scenes you know it's, it's mm. the, the main perpetrator it's, it's not really I don't think it's a spoiler to say you know yeah. dies at the beginning and, and Indeed, we have, yeah. um Cora this this widow who has this this history of abuse that is we're given in in glimpses and it is very lightly done. I don't think, I didn't find it to be gratuitous, mm. um, but it propels her and it, and it changes the way that all of the people treat her who know her. And I thought that was very, very skillfully done. The way that other characters respond to her. It was, it was I thought it was quite elegant. And, and we see Cora as this, you know, she's a phenomenally strong character and she is, independent and she is free thinking and free spirited and the, the the show you know gives her space to be those things she's not portrayed as a, a sort of a broken word the word broken comes up right we have again a metaphor of kintsugi that that comes up of you know mending things with with gold and 
we hear about that, but but she's not portrayed primarily as a victim. She's primarily an active force. And I, I, I thought that was very carefully done. I have to say that we do glimpse moments of appalling violence and, and torture really. And yet she is allowed to be more than that in a very convincing and real way. Mm. <laughs> and, and she walks beyond it and returns to it at certain moments. So there's, I, I admired the, the capaciousness of the storytelling there, the way that it allows for that and allows for her to move beyond it. And there are all these other kind of moments where we're reminded of bodily trauma, right? Because we have the surgeon character who is busy cutting up hearts and what could be, you know, again, with these metaphors, they can feel a little bit much, you know, but, but we're given all of these different angles on bodily trauma, the ways that that relates to emotional trauma, and the, the effect of all of those other angles on it, I think, was actually to allow Cora to be a lot more than that. I think I think I agree with what you say about the force, the the the, the shining, bony presence of Claire Danes, and um, hats off to the costume and makeup department and how they've not approached this as. Um, a, a sumptuous costume drama and yet you know those of you who want the painterly blues and greens and um, uh, and, and rural uh, sweeping um, uh, views will will be getting them you won't you won't be you won't be disappointed um, but she does she she does Claire Danes does move with this powerful bony kind of shuddering, flanked, luminescent force, a bit like a, uh, an abused thoroughbred who's just streaking off to the marshes. There is this kind of equine power um, in her. And then, of course, there's this glorious um, red blonde hair as well, which singles her out and, and, and as, as, a, as, a, as a shining cerebral creature of attempted reason in these marshes where the rural folk are increasingly convinced being stirred up by Will's assistant pastor, which as far as antagonists in this drama go, and I think it is interesting that Michael, the abusive husband is, you know, dies at the beginning. Um, so we're sort of, we're, we're left really with the, the, the love triangle or, or, or even square perhaps because yeah. <laughs> there's, there's Cora there's, and, and then there's her three potential lovers. There's Martha, her companion and Marxist housekeeper and a revolutionary. He's trying to bring about social housing bill. There's Will um, played by Tom Hiddleston as the, the, the vicar. And there's Luke um, played by Frank Delane. My feelings about the, physical and sexual abuse having already happened is it is a bit like what has already happened to the earth there is this um there is this line you've mentioned the heart being cut open of the earth being cut open bodies being cut open bodies being branded my feeling was a bit split actually um i recognize what you're saying about not being gratuitous but i also feel like it was neatened up so the script was overly on message about things being resolved like uh Cora at one point saying I break things and Martha saying you can fix things too um 
So I, f- I found that uh, just a, a little too neat compared to the possibilities that were there. And I found that surprising and a bit dismaying considering Cleo Barnard's history of telling complex stories of loneliness, ostracisation and um, resentment in an unpatronising way in such great films as The Selfish Giant, which I absolutely love, and of course her seminal film The Arbour. And so thinking about the local people, I, let's just talk about the, the, the local people and Martha Um, And the reason I'm putting them together is because I found there was a shade of that BBC attitude towards the simple-minded rustics and the sidekick maid who, despite her occasional exasperations, speaks of her mistress in the third person admiringly. I love the, as I said, the kind of the, 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 the... the bony features, um, the the shine on the nose, um, Hiddleston's uh, you know handsome face being kind of properly properly bashed in, and no no makeup um, hiding the, the the hollows under his eyes, etc. His receding hairline, etc. You know, I, I liked all of that, um, but I just wondered, like, where is so so with the rural citizens? I was just wondering where's where's the labour, where's desire, where's ambition. And living in a rural area, we are constantly, as we were at the beginning of this podcast, I don't know if our listeners heard the mowers, we're constantly surrounded by work, whether it's with the animals or whether it's with the land or whether it's with the verges. I don't know. Am I being unfair there? Did you, did you spot that? Absolutely. I think it, it links for me to this over cleaving to theme <laughs> where the story in its thematic element calls upon the local people of Essex to be superstitious and suspicious and hostile to quote unquote progress in the form of Cora coming in to to teach them the truth about this mysterious and terrifying serpent. And so in that sense, they are lumped together for that purpose. I think Martha, the character of Martha is again an attempt to, to not lump essentially the working class characters right into this sort of shape of an unthinking superstitious mass because because Martha is a communist and she's reading Marx and she's going to save the world and, and she's you know got huge agency in the story in, in some ways and yet that all feels a little bit like patching or kind of trying to 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 cover what is nonetheless a portrayal of a group of people who are who are thinking rustically. I think it's very difficult because I, I'm very interested, and, and this is something I thought about in my novel as well, and, and worried about a bit in in group thought and the ways that communities can close ranks against outsiders, and, and we mm. see that happens, and that is you know genuinely a, a reaction that, that communities have when they are sort of broached by forces or people that they find to be strange to them. And yet you need to be careful to show humanity and individuals within that. And as for um, Hayley Squires, who's an actress I really enjoy, but here, um, again, I found, I thought, I thought you know, the idea of a, of a Marxist housekeeper with whom 
uh, with whom the heroine has uh, a friendship, so that so they're more of of equals. Um, of, of course, they have their own maid because this is still <laughs> this is this is this is still a period drama, um, and we can't get our corsets on without without some some extra help. You know, get corsets on and get food on the table. Quite demanding, um, uh, but yeah, ultimately, I found Martha a little overly tender. Um, perhaps, you know, in keeping with, again, for me, that sort of traditional BBC um, central casting, sort of self-abasing, always understanding, um, slightly awed, inferior. And for me, I thought, oh, my God, you know, if I really fancy this woman who I was regularly, who was regularly coming to my bed, turning up in her nighty, it would be like kind of quite an erotic torment. I don't think I'd get any sleep. Um, like it was where where was that she's an unbelievably forgiving character isn't she and she has a habit of removing herself when she doesn't like something rather than uh, trying to change it but I suppose partly I just think I would have watched her show yeah (laughs) that that character is so fantastic and actually a more original and compelling study than than some of what is really the concern of of this story Mm. they could have they could you're absolutely right they could do so much more with her I would totally watch Hayley Squire's Martha show oh for sure absolutely Martha Martha and her Martha and her revolutions um persuading members of parliament uh having having sex with fellow co-conspirators I mean I think we needed with us that's the show that we need But you talked about the, the big eye, you know, ultimately how it goes in for these big ideas. We've talked about um, the body and about changing landscapes and the metaphor of the water and the earth. What about the big idea of there are many kinds of love? So this is an idea that um, is emerges in the, 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 the series. Um, we've touched on... Um, there is married love. It's between Will and his wife, who is, again, slightly for me, um, stock central casting kind of benevolent, understanding woman in William Morris inflected um, arts and craft smocks. So there's there, there's Will and Stella, the married couple. There's erotically charged platonic love. And then there's queer desire in the form of Martha's feelings for Cora did this feel to you like a genuine concern of the series yes and no I think it it makes good use of all of the dramatic possibilities there particularly I I suppose I it is for me a successful portrait of yearning in different ways and and the ways that yearning can make us mean or make us careless or make us wet blankets and and all of that I think was quite interestingly portrayed. Cora herself is a bit of a question mark there though and, and you know it's as with, I think we've said this about a lot of the storytelling here it, it is all quite restrained right we don't get these kind of soaring strings payoffs I don't think that I hope that's not too much of a, a spoiler to say that you know this is restrained all the way through and there is a lot of you know the, the river is beneath us stuff um which is, I think, probably quite 
true to how a lot of humans live their lives, right? We don't say a lot. And when we do, we say it wrong or we say it at the wrong time. And I'm, that's where I start getting quite sentimental. I like that stuff. <laughs> I, I find it moving the ways that we, we misunderstand each other or miss each other or talk past each other or, or offend without meaning to. I, I feel that Cora, we needed a bit more of Cora and her, her kind of human feeling as opposed to ideas. There's so much ideas and, and so much talk about ideas. Cora behaves in her character. It, it's a little colder than it could have been. Mm. I think um, what you're saying just reminds me of um, Tom Hiddleston's great reactions and looks, harrowed, slightly off-centre um, look that comes over his careworn features. And if Danes is this quivering, ardent, um, runaway thoroughbred, um, then he's just so much more watchful. Um, and perhaps you're right that if actually Cora had been given a kind of less to say, but almost more to do um, and more, you know, in more ways to react, which I was kind of expecting. I thought, what's Barnard going to do with this, with this novel? Because I hadn't thought of putting the two together, Cleo Barnard and Sarah Perry. I just was really curious. And I, you know, I, I thought of, for example, Andrea Arnold's Wuthering Heights, where she just basically, you know, she she takes the bare bones of the story and she just throws out. She dares to, to throw out the dialogue, you know, altogether, which on the one hand, I really missed such lines as I am Heathcliff. You know, was, you know to me, it, it, it was heresy to, to not have <laughs> to not have that. But um, but it is quite interesting. You know, if you think about the the guts of that sort of move of, well, we're never going to get all the details and all the intellectual ins and outs and, and all the physical subtlety that you can create on the page. And for me, that, I mean, that's something that we were just talking before recording, that something that you really do um, in the way that you write and the way that you write is highly visual as well. Um, so yeah, perhaps if Cora had, you know, if we'd actually just kind of seen her with her hands in the earth and doing more and also just reacting more physically when she was encountering people. To me, it did seem a little bit unlikely that somebody who'd experienced such physical trauma would encounter other people on a sensual level on, in the way that she does. Um, however, um, just sort of, if we can kind of step back for a moment and enter um, our ranking room at What Goddesses Watch. So named after Lorraine Hansbury, we ask for Hansbury and Pantsbury moments. So Hansbury is kind of hands up. Yes, love this stuff. And Pantsbury is, uh -uh, or maybe just, or hmm, not really sure. Um, so starting with Pantsbury, what, 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 what would your Pantsbury's be? Hansbury's, I think there are some, there are just some moments where it was all a little too on the nose for me. And, and I've kind of, I think I've made my case, but I'll, I'll give the example that I thought was most gratuitous, which is very early on. We have the doctor figure presenting Cora with a, a sliver of human heart. And 
we, we already understand what's at play between these two characters. And then later she writes them a letter and says, I still have your heart. And it's all just a little bit much. And I think doesn't give the viewer enough agency and enough respect almost to kind of put these things together. And we don't, we just don't need it spelled out that clearly. The other area that I just wonder in terms of when you have a story that's about an outsider going into a community um, or two outsiders in the case of Cora and Martha and the conflagrations that follow, if you have more variety in the community and in the encounters, I just wonder how different this series could have been. So, so what about Hansbury then? I do admire the visuals of the entire show. I, I, it is beautiful to watch. We haven't really talked about the clothes, but, but they were fantastic. I don't care at all that I'm not convinced they were particularly um, accurate of the time. They looked like they came out of toast. And I was very happy looking at these characters in these brilliant clothes. Yeah, I agree. Um, the uh, the greens and blues and boniness and marshland. So that that ochre and ivory light that's just creeping in and it's not overly done. And there is, as you said, there's never a great romantic payoff, even visually, which you get the feeling that Barnard could just do with a little, you know, snap of her fingers. Um, the photography uh, that combines this harmony and also the grit, which is the the, the lifeblood of, uh, of the marshes. So those, those bare feet, the rough knuckles, um, Tom Hiddleston's, yes, the jaunty scarf, but and the fabulous coat, which I was really into. <laughs> but but also he had these clomping Vickers shoes that were, that would come in shot, and you'd see they were they were really clumpy, and it was like you were being dared to fancy Tom Hiddleston now. But the the harmony, and as you say, the palette reminded me of my favourite uh, TV series, OG TV series, which you can get on DVD and stream, which is Brideshead Revisited, mm -hmm. and the work of the art director, Margaret Coombs, um, because she also has the capacity to, for example, do an entire scene in shades of of, of red, where it will be, you know, um, crimson, russet, rose, just... But there the beauty plays off uh, spiritually and tragically against the homoeroticism within the series. Here, these layers of green, blue and brown, for me, somewhat smothered the sparks of dangerous ideas of queerness, platonic love and polyamory. I was a bit suspicious that all this taste was ironically, given the archaeological metaphor, covering things up. Thank you, Nell Stevens, author of Bleaker House and the forthcoming Briefly A Delicious Life, for watching it with us. Thank you so much for having me. I maybe haven't given this impression, but it was a genuine pleasure to watch. The Essex Serpent plays globally every Friday on Apple TV, launching on Friday the 13th of May. Nell Stevens' forthcoming book, Briefly A Delicious Life, comes out in the UK late June of this year and then in the States from July the 19th. And thank you for joining us at What Goddesses Watch. Um, let us know what you think of the Essex Serpent and our ideas on it at Goddess Demented on Twitter. Um, you can also, even better, better yet, join us as a patron and influence the kind of um, 
discussions and programs that we make. Uh, receive exclusive podcasts on bite-sized feminist film history, fabulous merch starring you as a goddess by our artist Sarah Jane Krausen and loads, loads more. Um, that's at patreon.com forward slash what goddesses watch. This episode of What Goddesses Watch was produced by Soma Ghosh with music by Penelope Traps. We don't interrupt your listening pleasure with advertising, but we'd love you to join us as a patron. If you enjoy this episode and you want us to make more podcasts about films by and about women, then go to patreon.com forward slash what goddesses watch. That's patreon.com forward slash what goddesses watch and support us from £1.99 a month or if you're listening on RSS.com, hit the donate button now.